It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to Season 4 of the Executive Access Podcast. For more than four decades, Stan Kasten has authored one of the most remarkable careers in American sports. After joining the Atlanta Braves in 1976, Kasten rocketed up the executive ladder, becoming the general manager for the NBA's Hawks three years later, before assuming team president duties for both the Hawks and Braves in 1986. Having already won back-to-back NBA Executive of the Year awards, Kasten was at the helm as the Braves turned their franchise around, kicking off a staggering run of 14 straight division titles, winning the 1995 World Series. He later became team president for the NHL's Thrashers, concurrently holding that title for teams in three professional sports, an unmatched achievement. Kasten went on to run the Washington Nationals for nearly five years, then became president and CEO of the Los Angeles Dodgers after he and his ownership group purchased the club in 2012. Under his watch, the Dodgers have won seven straight NL West titles, reaching the World Series twice. Had a chance to sit down with Kasten in his office at Camelback Ranch in Glendale, Arizona, before camps were closed for spring training. We discussed his remarkable career, the evolution of a major league front office, his best Vin Scully story, and much more. As we all wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dodgers president and CEO, Stan Kasten. Stan, you grew up in Lakewood, New Jersey, big Yankees fan. Was baseball always an early passion for you? Oh, man, was it ever. And it was a great time to be a baseball fan if you were a fan of the Yankees. My my earliest memory of baseball is, unfortunately, Mazeroski's ball going over the wall in the 60 World Series. But imagine being a Yankee fan then. You're in the World Series every single year. Your heroes are Mickey Mantle, you know, people like Whitey Ford, you know, people like that. And so, yeah, it was a great time. And, and uh I was hooked. You graduated from NYU, got your law degree at Columbia. You are, I believe, going to be an antitrust lawyer. How did you yeah. How did you wind up working in sports? Um, it's an amazing story. I was going to be an antitrust lawyer. I, uh, But before I started work in that first summer after school, I took two bar exams, which is brutal, New York and New Jersey. Um, and uh, when I was done before I started work, I took a drive around the country doing then what I do now for fun. I was going to baseball games. And on my trip home, one night I was in St. Louis and the Braves were playing the Cardinals. The Braves were awful. And I saw this, this guy running up and down the stands. This is in 1976. And I was as big a fan that I knew the owners of teams. I, to this day, I don't know how, because it was Ted Turner's first year owning the team. But I knew who that was. And I was with my wife. And I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to go talk to him. And... and um, and I did after the game, and I introduced myself, and we talked for a couple minutes, and we hit it off, and he invited me down to Atlanta. That was 1976, and I have been there ever since. What did you learn most working for Ted? Uh, the importance of uh, not being timid, of uh, taking gambles, taking risks, going, going for the big play, 
Um, it was a great time to be with him and with his company. Very entrepreneurial spirit. He let you do as much as you could. He encouraged, he encouraged a lot of free thinking and a lot of entrepreneurial thinking, a lot of risk taking, and uh, uh, and that has stood me in good stead my entire career. So you initially joined up with Ted as legal counsel for the Hawks and Braves. Is that correct? It was to work uh, for the Braves. We did not yet own the Hawks. Okay. But my first day in Atlanta in October. 1976, I attended a meeting at the end of that day with our outside counsel. We were in discussions to buy the Hawks, which we later did in January of 77, so two months after I joined the team, we bought the Hawks. And then Ted makes you the assistant GM, and eventually in 1979, you're named GM, 27 years old, youngest GM in league history. Yeah. Did you feel like you were prepared for that job? No, <laughs> no. Uh, I tried to hide it well, and I have just enough self-confidence and arrogance that I think I pulled it off, but no, you can I had no natural constituency. I was not a former player. I had not been in the league. I didn't know any of the people. So I really had to start from scratch, but I worked very hard. And I, I, I pride myself on working hard and learning a lot. Um, and so I did. So no, I did not feel prepared, but within a couple years, you know, things fell into place. Three years into your stint as GM, you trade for Dominique Wilkins. That move worked yeah. out pretty well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a great story. Uh, obviously was a local hero uh, because of Georgia, but he was an extraordinary physical talent. And so we tried real hard all summer to get him. He had been drafted by Utah. Fortunately, the GM in Utah was a personal friend of mine because we had started together in Atlanta, Frank Layton. And we talked all summer. They were having real problems in Utah financially. And we let them know we could include a lot of money in the deal if we could get this kid. And uh, by the end of August, we made a trade, but it was conditioned on our being able to sign him. The longest trade call I was ever on was the then uh, uh, lawyer for the NBA, David Stern. And uh, we had very tight restrictions on what we could offer the kid, and what we would offer the kid, and it took an all-night negotiating session in Boston with Bob Wolf. We only had one night to do it, and we got it done, and Dominique has you know, become the superstar that he became. You became team president in 1986, the Hawks win 50-plus games four straight years. You've been back-to-back -back Executive of the Year awards in that time. What was your favorite part of running an NBA team? You know, it's, it's uh, all of these jobs. We're all lucky, any of us who has these. It's the nightly competition. After a loss, there's no worse feeling. But even that is adrenaline pumping because it, it is equaled or topped by the feeling of winning, you know, and the next day. So the... the Immediate feedback of winning or losing every day is extraordinary. You know, most of us in our lives, we get feedback, we get, you know, performance reports and all that, and we get annual bonuses, and that's how we know how we're doing. Non-sports, man, we know every day. And it's either, you know, a pit in your stomach all day or exhilaration and exuberance, and that's hard to replicate in any other business. Players talk about, after a loss, not being able to wait to get back out there. Do you feel the same way after a yeah. loss? You just couldn't wait for that next night's game? For sure. Um, and that's why baseball is better at that than basketball. I will remember when we had, a, when we had a, a Saturday night off and we had a win on Friday and didn't play again until Tuesday in the NBA schedule, it was like the greatest weekend of your <laughs> life. You, know, you, were, you were coasting on a win all weekend. Conversely, you know, if you lost that Friday night game and you didn't get out there till Tuesday, it was brutal. You know, yeah. But that's as Hyman Roth says, and I use this for all of my all of my staffers when they're worried about criticism 
or the anguish that comes with this sport, as Hyman Roth said to Michael Corleone in that hotel room in Havana, this is the business we've chosen. That just comes with it, and that's both the good and the bad side of it. Anybody who quoted The Godfather on this podcast, you're now automatically right at the top of the list of my favorite guests. Uh, 1986, you're also named the president of the Braves. Yeah. In this culture now, it seems crazy to think about oh, somebody it was crazy running. Then. How, how do you juggle? How did you it juggle? It was crazy then. Two teams. Uh, and I tell this story to people all the time. I've been having some success. The Braves were beyond woeful uh, and had a long history of being beyond woeful. And Ted says to me, I, I need you to come run the Braves. He knew my first love was baseball. That's why I came to Atlanta. But I'd been establishing myself. I'd been building a career in the NBA. And uh, uh, I said, no, Ted. And he didn't want me to just do it instead of the Hawks. He wanted me to do it in addition. I said, no, Ted, that, it, it, that's not right. It, it, it can't be done. He said, oh, come on, you can do it. You can definitely do it. You'll be the first one running two teams. Isn't that right? I said, yeah, Ted, do you know why that is? <laughs> it's, just, it's such a bad idea, but... Ted and I had this understanding. When he and I disagreed on something, we just did things his way. And, and so that's how I became the president of the Braves. And, uh, you know, that, that was an exciting but very difficult time for me. What were the biggest differences between running an NBA team and a Major League Baseball team? Well, uh, uh, first of all, to the company, the Braves are a much, much bigger deal, much, much more important, uh, you know. Uh, the Superstation was the engine that drove our company's train. And Brave's programming on the Superstation was the engine driving the Superstation program. So it really had to be good. Uh, it's a much, much bigger deal. In the NBA back then, your universe was 12 players. In baseball, my universe, both domestically and internationally, was 250 players. And putting a team together, you do in a very different way in baseball from basketball. So learning all that, learning the people, learning the angles, you know, the, 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 uh, the ways to, to shave a little and get a benefit here and there, just learning that uh, took some time. But like I said, I, I worked hard at it because I took a lot of pride in it. And um, we had a big challenge, but Ted gave us the tools to accomplish what we needed to accomplish. When I was a kid, CBS is all about NWA wrestling. That was the, yeah, where I... with, with three benches <laughs> behind the... That's right. The, like Don, 30 I've people made, in the studio. Yeah, I've been in that studio so many times. Yeah, back in the old days of TBS, it it was, it was in retrospect, it was so lucky for me that I had that experience, but every day was kind of, you know, patched things together and hope you, you wind up with something good. Talking to people in baseball, not only on this podcast, but over the 20 years I've been covering the game, so many people who didn't grow up in big league markets said the Braves were their favorite team yeah. because of TBS and their access to it. Did you guys realize at the time the national we did. impact that we, that we did. station Nobody, had? I, I, Ted did. Nobody else did. Um, but we certainly did, and we were seeing it all over. It, 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 it was evident in our ratings. And remember, we were the first really national superstation that marketed itself as a superstation. You know, I, I was kind of the... Uh, uh, the the sacrificial lamb because I was the young lawyer who had to go to a major league meeting and explain to other owners the advent this great new technology the superstation you can be able to see baseball all over well people in other markets that were now getting the superstation they weren't happy about it and I remember the first and only time I ever spoke to Walter O'Malley in my life was in my first major league meeting in in the Tampa Airport Hotel where Stan Kasten and a young Terry McGurk had to go, and we were the first ones to talk about the Superstation, 
And uh, so we were getting peppered with questions. They were not happy. There were owners who were just not happy about this. Uh, it was a federally created thing. There wasn't anything anyone could do about it. We just had taken advantage of it. But I remember Walter looking at me and, and, and asking me questions and calling me counselor, you know, with like with eight syllables in a way that made it sound like the worst insult you could possibly ever have. Um, but that was, uh, uh, that was my introduction to baseball. It was, it was not smooth. And by the way, I had the same problems in the NBA. And until the league made a deal with TBS to become the network of the NBA, we had the same kind of rough treatment from other owners in the NBA for the same reasons. The Braves, you guys turned the Braves around, 14 straight division titles. You've won more games than any other team during yeah. that period, yeah. uh, starting in 91. What was the key to that consistency? The key was, um, I tell this story, and, and I hope people appreciate it. So I get to the Braves, and after 30 days, Ted gives me some advice when he's saying, here, you're going to be the president. You, you, know, you should think about this, this, this. I said, Ted, I'm going to make my own decisions, okay? And I took 30 days to go in and see what I could find, and I, and I had some clear understandings right away. And I went back to him 30 days later. I said, Ted, here's the problem. Every year, your ad boys at the TV station need you to get that year's top free agent. And you know whether it's Claudel Washington or Al Roboski or Andy Messmith, you're not taking yourself closer to winning. You're taking yourself farther away because you're wasting money invariably. If you spend a lot of money, and if you're lucky, you get one great season out of one great player instead of taking that same money, buying more minor league teams, hiring more scouts, hiring more instructors, getting more kids. Maybe you'll develop with that same amount of money, 10 players who give you 10 seasons each. That's a much different return, and you're not giving up draft picks. You're not blocking the way for other young kids. And I go through all this, and he looks at me and says, Stan, I don't need a lecture. Just go do it. And I tell that to people because when Ted said to Stan, just go do it, he meant it. And a lot of owners will tell you that, okay? And they'll tell you put a long-term plan in place, and they'll tell you to do things the right way. But as soon as you lose two games in a row, people start getting fired, okay? We've seen that repeatedly. Ted meant it. Ted was too busy to think about the Braves full-time with other bigger, you know, global things. And so he let me do the thing. Bobby Cox was already there, devoted to player development. I came in with Ted's blessing to turn the dial all the way to the right and really put a development plan in place. And I said, Ted, for the next four years, I could be the village idiot on the local talk shows. We didn't have the internet yet or, or Twitter, thank goodness. <laughs> but I'm going to be the village idiot for the next four years. As we're building, he says, didn't matter. And Ted was impervious to criticism. You know, he, he invented publicity. He didn't care about publicity coming in. And so he let us wallow for a while as we were building up. But then, you know, when the final piece, and the final piece was me finding the right GM to do the mix to get Bobby back into the dugout, hired John Sherholz, and everything uh, fell into place after that. What made John the, the Hall of Fame executive that he became? John uh, had a real understanding for the game, had a real understanding for the business, had a fine appreciation for both and the intersection of both. Uh, came with a lot of, uh, with a lot of respect both inside uh, uh, the front office and outside in the world, and that really helped set us up. He made some key strategic moves along with Bobby. And by the way, in retrospect, we now know Bobby was a hell of a GM for the minor league system he had put in place. But John coming in to put some values in front of our players about here's how we're going to conduct ourselves, here's who we are, here's why we are here. Um, 
And like I said, by then we had started to put the players in place to begin the run. 1992, you signed Greg Maddox, f- five years, $28 million. The Yankees had offered $6 million more. George Steinbrenner really wanted Maddox. Yeah. Did you think you were going to get him? Uh, I didn't. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of his agent. His agent was Scott Boris. I have heard of him. And so typically he doesn't take lesser deals. But Greg had a friend on our team, Damon Berryhill, uh, who was his catcher in Chicago. Right. And he says, you know, he has told me this subsequent. Boy, during the 92 World Series, uh, my face is pressed up against the TV just seeing everyone, you know, in the World Series and how much I envied that and how much I wanted to be a part of that. And he says, we were about to accept the Yankees deal. I'm on a plane. I land the plane. Uh, Boris says, the Braves called with their last offer. Here's what it is. And Max says, good. I'm going to take the Braves offer. It's interesting because back then, I mean, people think now of the Yankees being this team that contends for you know, playoffs and championships every year. Back in 1992, they hadn't been in the playoffs in a decade. So it, didn't, it wasn't necessarily the same, but George Steinbrenner was out there trying to yeah. you know, spend whatever he had to. Yeah. Although they were aggressive, that was the biggest uh, that was the biggest contract that year, and so uh, we knew we always had to worry about them, but not till October. Okay, we we uh, had to worry about our league and our. Remember, we were still in the Western Division, which was a pain in the neck uh, until the realignment came after after '94. So uh, we were worried about our division, worried about our uh, league, but we had the horses to do that, and we had a development system. I remind people that. We all know how we got there in '91, but unless we had a unless we had a farm system that was producing Rafael Furcal and Ryan Klesko and Javier Lopez in the middle of the decade that propelled us through the second half of the decade, the run doesn't happen without the constant productivity of the farm system. You mentioned that twenty-eight million dollar deal was the biggest contract yeah. at the time. Yeah. Could you have ever imagined where contracts would go in your career? No, only in horrific nightmares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, no, it's unimaginable. I remember my first year here, someone had just signed a $4 million contract, which was monstrous, uh, you know, $4 million a year. And people were debating that the next year, for some reason, it's going to jump for the next big free agent. And the next big free agent was going to be Don Mattingly. And he was going to go to six. Then I think it was it was uh, it, it was uh, uh, Sandberg. I guess it was going to get six next, you know. And so and so um, that was the progression. I will tell you this. I remember talking to Larry Fleischer in the NBA when he signed David Thompson for eight hundred grand, and I asked him, "Did you ever imagine salaries getting up to eight hundred grand?" He said, "Absolutely, I did. Absolutely. I don't know that he ever imagined thirty, thirty-five million. Right. Um, NBA is even more than that now." Yeah, I think the max you can cap out is 42 in the NBA. Um, no, I didn't imagine it. So you want to really scare me? Ask me to think about what they're going to be in 20 years from now. Another thing that's grown exponentially since you started in this business is the size of front offices. Yeah. When you started with the Hawks and Braves, I would imagine they were considerably smaller operations. Yeah. How, how have you seen sort of the evolution of... Well, well, the business has gotten bigger. You know, revenues used to be X... And now they're 10x, so the front offices are probably 10x because it takes money to uh, uh, drive all these sales, to service all these customers. Um, we're smarter about it. Uh, I don't know, the profits have grown. Some years there's no profit at all in the industry. Some years there is. So the perception that this is just you know people swimming in, in dollars has never been true. It's still not true. 
Uh, but the business is bigger, and that takes more people to drive that kind of business. In 1999, the NHL awarded an expansion team to Atlanta. So naturally, you became the team president for the yeah. Thrashers. What was it like running a team in a third professional sport? That was not supposed to happen. I had made it clear I was not going to do that. I was going to build the arena because I was the only one in our company that had arena uh, 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 knowledge, and I had built a stadium. And I said, I'll do that, and I will help you get an expansion team because Gary Bettman one of my closest friends. So I was helping them lead the application for their expansion. I said, but I'm not going to run the team because that's absurd. And so a week, so we get the expansion team, we build our arena, and a week before opening day, we get the news that Harvey Schiller, who was supposed to be the president, was the president of the team, was leaving and taking uh, a job running Yes Network. Phone on my desk rings, literally, and it's Terry telling me, hey, congratulations, you've got a third team. <laughs> it was not, not at all uh, our intent, but say love. And a sport you probably didn't have a whole lot of experience not, with. Not any experience with and not a lot of passion for. But I will tell you, it, that changed really quickly because it's a great sport with great, great people. Um, when you think about players and the way they appreciate what they have, these are kids, in the most case, from the backwoods of Canada or from uh, poorer backgrounds in Eastern Europe. Those people really care about their sport, about their craft. They appreciate what they have, and it was a lot of fun. I was only in it for four years, uh, but it was a lot of fun. November of 2003, you resigned your team presidency for all three teams. You'd basically been running Atlanta sports for a very long time. How tough was that decision? Well, it was, uh, it was tough, but I knew it was the right thing to do, even though it was tough. I can tell you in retrospect, it was the best thing I ever did. Um, I, I had been doing that for 27 years. And I was kind of on autopilot, you know, because there are times of the year when everything had times of the year when you're selling tickets, times of the year when you're trading players, times of the year when you come to training camp. And, and your routine becomes uh, so repetitive that I thought I needed a new challenge. What made the timing so good for us was uh, our ownership had decided they were going to divest of their teams. And I said to them, guys, I spent so many years building up these properties. I don't want to be a part of tearing them down. And they were so good to me to stand up. That's how you feel. You're, we'll let you go. You're free to go. And so I, I left to see what else I would do next. Your teams in Atlanta made the playoffs 30 times combined. Yeah. 1995 World Series was the only championship. How special was that run for you at the Braves? Uh, 95 or all of them. I well, mean, the, yeah. The, the championship year. Yeah, the championship year was, you know, it's what we do. It's all we spend our time doing uh, every waking minute. Uh, is consumed with how do we get to the World Series and how do we win the World Series. So uh, to call it the greatest night of my professional life, that's an easy call. Um, but there are so, so, so many things that are tied for a second. You know, we, it was great fun that whole time. Um, 91, we went worse to first. We, we were a bad team in 90. And to go to the seventh game of the World Series that next year, that was really thrilling against another team that had gone worse to first. It was, and none of those teams won a road game. It was, just, it was just an extraordinary run. 92 was the Sid Breen year. You know, that was another unbelievably exciting year. So every year had a story. Uh, some of them were bad stories, like 92 when we had a two-game lead, having won two games on the road in Yankee Stadium, and then we lose four in a row. So, um, but they're all historic. They're all part of my life that I'm, very, very proud of. I've been to the World Series with teams seven times, and I, I've only won once, 
uh, but I'm proud of all seven for sure. 2006, you joined the Nationals as team president. What drew you to that organization? Well, I uh, first of all, I love Washington, D.C., one of my favorite cities in the world. I think it's the most important city in the world. And to bring back uh, uh, the national pastime in the nation's capital was really a thrilling challenge. We were an expansion team, let's face it, because baseball had propped the team up for sale, had not spent any money investing in the minor leagues. So we really had to start one fan at a time because they hadn't had baseball for 30 years. We played in a historic venue like RFK. And when you use historic to describe venues, not a good word, okay? <laughs> That's a very benign way right. to describe it. Uh, but then we finally, you know, uh, we had our deal with the city worked out before we bought the team. We built a fabulous new stadium in the heart of D.C. in the shadow of the Capitol. And it was a great time. I love the city. I get back as often as possible. And again, we were able, we had to take a couple years as we were building. Um, and that meant, you know, we were telling fans, you know, we're going to be good in five years. I hope you join us now, but we're going to be good in five years. And that was our mantra. And we did it by starting over by building a new front office. And I'm very proud of the guys who are still there today, still running that team and now are world champions. What did you see in Mike Rizzo when you hired him as GM? Mike was uh, old school for sure. You know, second generation, pure scout, but had a great way about him with players, with other scouts, with front office people, super dedicated, super interested in looking around corners and taking the next step and uh, being a little much of a gambler on some of his deals. We knew that was a good quality. He had to surround himself with technical people, which that's easy to do. And, and that's what we did. When we uh, had the opening, the vacancy in the GM job, I told the learners on day one, I'm gonna conduct a long, quiet, full search for the best person we can get. But I'm telling you today that when we're done, you're gonna wanna hire Mike. And that's what we did. And all the guys who are GMs now, who were assistant GMs then, I interviewed all of them quietly, privately. And they agreed, and when we were done, they agreed, and they said, you're right, Mike, for us, as a fit, Mike is the best one, and turned out he was. You resigned from the Nationals September 2010. You had informed the learners a year before yeah. that you were going to do that. What prompted your decision to leave Washington? Well, it was just not a good situation for me personally. Uh, my family was still in Atlanta. The learners had a real specific way of being involved on every little detail. Uh, which which is really good and effective in their businesses and good in the baseball business. I thought I could do more for myself, with myself, with my particular skills in a different situation. So I told them, guys, I, I love you all, and I'm still very close to all of them to this day. But I think for myself, I'd be a better fit somewhere else, so I'm going to move along. I'm sure you weren't rooting for them in the early rounds in 2019. Not in the first round. Uh, not in the not first, the first round. round. Uh, but... As you watched them win the World Series, it was nine years since you left, but the GM you hired is still the GM there. There are still the people there. The GMs, the scouts, you, yeah. Was there, were you happy to see Strasburg, them win? Strasburg, Harper, Zim, yeah, they're all... I was proud and happy for all of them. But I'm, you know, I don't want any team to win that night, okay? Any night. So, yeah, there's an envy that they had won the World Series, but of course I'm proud of all my, my guys. I couldn't be prouder of my guys. When you left Washington, there were a lot of people who believed that you might emerge as Bud Selig's successor as the commissioner. Was that an idea that ever intrigued you? I, I was asked about it, and I told this to Bud, and I told the people who asked me about it, that um, it's a horrible job, okay? 
yeah, if they had no good candidate, there was a search, if they had no good candidate, come back to me, we could talk about it. But the job I have now, I was already the Dodger president. That's the best job in sports, okay? But you have a much more important job than, than uh, I do, but I have a way better job than you do. You have to deal with 30 knuckleheads like me every day. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like horrible. And I have had many occasions, and I told that to Rob before he took the job. I told that to Tom Warner when he's thinking about the job. Uh, and I've had many occasions to remind Rob of that since he's had the job. That, And this week and the last month, Rob doesn't disagree with me. It, it's a hard time in baseball. Uh, meanwhile, I'm just stuck with my one little task of building this great, iconic, global franchise. And, and that's been the thrill of my life. A little over a year after you leave Washington, you join up with Magic Johnson and Mark Walter and the rest of your group in an effort to buy the Dodgers. You initially thought the team might cost about $900 million. Yeah. Uh, ends up costing $2.15 billion. Yeah. What was the, the process of buying the Dodgers? Well, a couple things that we didn't know at the start. We didn't know what the rules of the bankruptcy court were going to be. We didn't know how much of the money was going to flow into the team and how much was going to be set aside and not available for, for, uh, team, for team revenues. And that really changed the value because what we were buying at the time was a franchise, uh, a global, iconic brand, a little bit down on its luck, in the second biggest market in America, in the media and entertainment capital of the world, with its rights up for uh, grabs at a time rights fees were exploding. That's an awful lot of elements to make this work really well. And we assessed that if we did our jobs right, the market would reward us in terms of ticket sales and hot dog and beer sales, partnerships, and yes, sponsorships, which includes media uh, partnerships. We thought it would pay off for us, and, and boy, did it ever. And Mark got so tired that first year or so of asking why we paid so much, he finally just answered, you know why? Because it was worth so much more, and that's exactly how it turned out. You've said that having Magic as the face of the ownership group set you apart from others. What is it about Magic that makes him so mm. special? Man, I cannot explain it, but there's no one who does Magic Johnson like Magic. It's extraordinary, his magnetism, uh, his feel for people, his ability to communicate that feeling. We had dinner last week with Mookie and David. Magic came in and we had dinner. And Magic was just being Magic, just himself. We all had the greatest time. He was able to communicate in a way that I can't, the importance of being an athlete in Los Angeles. The way to parlay your success on the field into a career for yourself after the game into the rest of your life. Who's the better example of that than Magic Johnson? Let me tell you something else he did for me uh, without saying a word. One day, I was doing a speech about the importance of uh, autographs and the importance of reaching out to fans, and I had Magic with me. And that day, Magic had, which he does with employees too, Magic had uh, left for each player in their locker two jerseys, both autographed, one personalized to that player and one not personalized so that the player could have it to use and give away to a charity or something. And kids, these professional athletes were jumping around like little kids that they had gotten their Magic Johnson jersey. And as I'm doing my speech for autographs, I say, guys, 20 minutes ago, you're jumping around because you had an autograph, and I promise you that's how any three-year-old or five-year-old or 38-year-old feels when they get an autograph from the 25th man on this team. That's the magic that we have to convey, and I can't do that making that speech, 
But just magic being there as an example and a role model, that made it for me. That's fantastic. When you began with the Dodgers, you went down into the stands at Dodger Stadium, chatted with fans. Yeah, just still got, do. Got yeah. Feel. Yeah. How important is it to stay in touch with people outside of your office? Yeah, well, otherwise, I just I just learn what fans think from the media, and that's a really bad, <laughs> that's a bad, unreliable way to go, okay? Uh, if I thought the only fans in the world were Twitter users, I'd want to... Let's not confuse Twitter users and the media okay, as being the same. Yeah, okay, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I got to know what they're thinking, got to go to... And they have to know that I'm accessible, that I'm available. Whether they get anything from me or not, they know, hey, I'm not ducking. I don't duck punches. I'm there. And I care. Uh, they need to know that. I, you know, I'm not from L.A., but I feel like I'm from L.A. because I've tried to make myself as much a part of that community as I can. Uh, I'm the face of ownership, and I take that very seriously. I take that responsibility very seriously. You had hired some pretty good GMs in your career. Yeah. What made Andrew Friedman the right person to run baseball well, ops for the Dodgers? Yeah, you're right. The only three that I've hired were uh, were uh, Shoreholes, Rizzo, and now Andrew. Uh, plus Farhan, if you, if you consider him. Um, uh, I I thought when we got there, we had an excellent front office. Ned Coletti was an excellent GM, as you recall, our first two years there. We won our division. Ned and his staff had done a good job. But I saw the wave that was coming, Mark. I saw the change that was coming to the game, the growth of analytics, the advantage teams with analytical uh, expertise was going to be having. That advantage was only going to grow. And we were not in the upper tier of teams in that skill. And we're the Dodgers. We have to lead in everything. And if we weren't leading, we were going to fall behind. So I went and found the best guy that I could that would be a fit in our market, that would be a fit with our ownership, that would be a fit with our front office. And I, I thought about many people. But Andrew seemed like the perfect fit. At the right time, whenever I would speak to him, um, I, I felt more uh, certain of that conviction. He was intrigued. I mean, let's face it. We're the Dodgers, okay? We're in Los Angeles. We're Jackie Robinson, Sandy Koufax, and Fernando Valenzuela, and Hideo Nomo, and on and on and on. And that was kind of appealing to him. He was appealing to me, and it was a really good fit. Really good fit. You mentioned how the game's evolved. What's been the biggest challenge for you in keeping up with the times through the years? Understanding that there are things I don't know, but we need them here. I'll give you the best example. Because I've been at this so long, almost 40 years in this business, I know the function of every department. I know the function of every job. I know what the ticket takers do. I know what the ticket sellers do. I know what the insurance department does. I know what the PR department does. I know what our scouts do. But I got you know a couple dozen people in the back room. I have no idea what the hell they're doing, <laughs> and that's the analytics people. You go through their, their rooms, and on the boards, they have these complicated mathematical formulas and graphs and stuff like that. And it's all baseball, but it looks like NASA, all right? And one day I walked through the bullpen, and I stopped. I said, guys, guys, you're just screwing with me now. This stuff that you just want me to see on the boards, it, it's not real. You just, you just want to spin my head around. They just laughed. So I don't know what they all do. I just know it's important, and it gives us an advantage over those teams that are not utilizing that particular skill. Everybody who's been around the Dodgers has one. So what's your best Vin Scully story? Um... Uh, on my, I, I had known Vin uh, for years, uh, just casually through my days in baseball, and but when I came here, I um, and when I was finally named the uh, president of the team, I got a call from him that day, 
was welcoming me, congratulating me, et cetera, et cetera. And I go home that day, and I tell my wife, uh, Vin Scully called me today. And she says, really, what do you want? I said, no. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> Vin Scully. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> yeah. That, that's amazing. And, and I thought to myself, when he retired, I thought about this. Vin and I developed a bond over one particular thing. The atrocious way major leaguers run uh, run trap plays when they're picked off, okay? And none of them know how to do it. Uh, Branch Rickey said 80 years ago, the, the way to defeat a rundown is not with this, you know, just teasing, 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 throwing the ball. It's with the full-arm fake because a full-arm fake stops the runner dead and no one does that. And I go to Vin, and, and Vin would complain about rundowns all the time. And I was listening in my office on TV once, and after the game, I was telling him, I had the same feeling we would talk about that. And I told him that story about Branch Rickey. I read about it in Branch Rickey's book, and he says, you know what? You're right. Branch and I used to talk about that. <laughs> okay? So Branch Rickey broke into baseball in 1903, and the newest player on our team when, when uh, Vin retired was Ross Stripling. And so Branch, so, so Vin's connections of people in baseball that he had spoken to lasted more than a century of That's major amazing. league players, right? That's Vin Scully. That's unbelievable. You, one of my favorite things I ever read from you, uh, you said any real Italian restaurant in America has three pictures on yeah. the wall. The Pope, Frank Sinatra, and Tommy Lasorda. That's how you know they're real. What's, <laughs> it, what's it been like to be around Tommy out here? Tommy, uh, he's cantankerous, but... There's never been a person more identified with one franchise ever in any sport than Tommy Lasorda. And it's not fake, man. He bleeds Dodger blue. It's not fake. It's who he is all the time, always. When I was, when I was uh, running the Hawks, he had become friends with my coach, Mike Fratello, and he would come to our games. I'm, I'm this more than 30 years ago. And he met my son, who was eight years old at the time, and he gave him an autograph. There's a much longer story, but he gave him an autograph and said, to Corey, your friend Tommy was sort of, you and the Dodgers are great. That's how he would sign them. And so my first week here, I see him greeting an eight-year-old, a little Joey. And he shakes his hand, he teaches him how to give a nice firm handshake and how to say please and thank you. And then he signs his autograph to Joey from your friend Tommy Lasorda. You and the Dodgers are great. That's who he is. There's nothing more important to him than the Dodgers, and there's nothing more important to the Dodgers than Tommy. You've disputed in recent years that the Dodgers haven't been big spenders, pointing to your annual high payroll. Well, you actually just did a spit take. <laughs> when people would, I think you know, we played baseball in in payroll since I've gotten here. Correct. So and yet, and yet, you drew a lot of criticism. We're not going out and getting big players, this and that. <laughs> How much of those perceptions bother you when they're, you know, you look at the the bottom line and they're not grounded in reality? Untrue stuff by media or their followers on the internet bother me. Okay, I prefer true stuff. All right, it's just me. Um, but you know what? As Hyman Roth said, this is the business we've chosen. Mark. I get that. Twice, I, like um, I think, I think the four million fans that come through every year are kind of a of a, 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 a signifying that we do have fans that like us, we do have fans that follow us, we do have fans that care about us, and that don't think we're awful people, as some people on Twitter seem to do. This past off season, you said. I like stars too. They're cool. They're fun. They're fun for teams, fun for the fans. But what's most important is winning. Speaking of stars, how has the acquisition of Mookie Betts and David Price injected some energy into the organization, yeah, well, gonna, the fan they're, base? They're going to help both. They're both stars, and they're going to help us win. And I like both of those things. Um, 
the I will tell you that the economics of baseball are tricky and not understood well by the media uh, because they are so tricky. In the last couple of years, we had a disincentive from spending over the cap. This year, those disincentives have been lessened because of circumstances with budgets and debt and stuff like that. So we had more flexibility this year. We'd also been spending a lot of time planning for this year. We also have a really productive farm system that enables us to go after guys at the top because we keep filling in with the Seegers and Bellingers and Luxes and Buellers. So it's always good to be able to get stars. Uh, and I've, I've signed many free agents in my life in three sports. I'm a big fan of doing that. But it has to make sense. You can't do what the TBS people were doing in the early days, just signing free agents to sell more ads. That doesn't work. That takes you farther away than closer. It's a lesson I've never forgotten. The Dodgers have won the NL West title all seven of your full seasons here. Got to the World Series in 2017, 2018. It's been more than 30 years, as you well know, since they've won the World Series. You've won a World Series. You have a ring in 1995. What would it mean to you to bring that Commissioner's Trophy back to Dodger Stadium? It would mean it would mean everything, which is why the recent revelations about 17 are so hard for all of us to process. Uh, it would mean everything. Uh, 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 it's it's what we all work toward. We we invest a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of psychic energy to get that goal. So make no mistake, all of us from the top of our ownership to the uh, uh, most junior person in our front office. This is the goal that drives us, and uh, and we're not gonna stop till we get it. Oh, and by the way, the morning after we get it, we're gonna start working on repeating. Stan, I could sit here for two hours and do this, but you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much, really enjoyed it. My pleasure, Mark, this was great. Many thanks to Stan Kasten for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Giants General Manager, Scott Harris. We'll discuss his unlikely friendship with the legendary Al Rosen, his rapid ascent through the Cubs front office, being a part of the curse-breaking team in Chicago, his future in San Francisco, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time... I'm Mark Feinsand. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.